Jodcast. Now with binary presenters. With Claire Bretherton, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, September edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today is Mark. Hi, Mark. Hello. It's just us two today, so we're kind of co-presenting. We were considering doing a whole routine, like a double act, but decided against it in the interests of the Jodcast, so you've been spared that. <laughs> in the show this time, we talked to Dr. Richard Shaw about measuring baryon acoustic oscillations using neutral hydrogen, and Claire Brotherton and Ian Morrison tell us what is to be seen in the September night sky. But first, before all of that, and since you'll only be hearing the two of us on this Jodcast, here's Indy with this month's news. In the news this month, the first generation of monster stars, and the new address for the Milky Way. As any astronomer will confidently tell you, we are all made of stars. That is to say, our constituent atoms, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, calcium and the rest, were all created by nuclear interactions occurring within stars, and for elements heavier than iron, in exploding stars known as supernovae. It is therefore possible to deduce a lot of information about a star by measuring the relative quantities of elements inside it. And the older a star is, the more heavy elements it will contain. But if we go back far enough, it stands to reason that the first stars after the Big Bang could only contain the elements that were formed at that point in time, hydrogen, helium, and a very small amount of lithium. Simulations of stellar evolution have predicted that the first generation of stars would be gigantic, with some being more than a 100 times bigger than the Sun. The thing about stars, though, is that the bigger they are, the shorter their lifetime. So these behemoths would have only lasted a few million years before exploding into supernovae, releasing the heavier elements they'd formed into the universe, and seeding the next batch of stars. At least, that's how the theory goes. But no evidence for the existence of such massive stars has previously been found. A team of astronomers at the National Astronomical Observatory in Tokyo, led by Wako Aoki, think they're onto something, though. Practicing what could be called stellar archaeology, they have found clues to the existence of the first generation of massive stars by studying a very old star that could be a direct descendant of the old giants. Small, slow-burning stars such as this one can have an extremely long lifespan, with the oldest having been around for about 13 billion years. They're almost as old as the universe itself. Previous studies have used these stars to figure out the chemical composition of the early universe and trace its evolution. The proportions of elements in the stars studied however, had so far not provided evidence in favour of the existence of truly gigantic stars. The star analysed by Aoki and his team proved to be somewhat different. Originally found by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, SDSS J0018-0939 was analysed using a spectrograph located on the island of Mauna Kea, Hawaii. The results showed that the star had a very distinct chemical profile containing a much higher abundance of iron relative to lighter elements such as carbon or magnesium. This implies that the mass of the star was formed from was the result of a specific kind of supernova, known as a pair instability supernova. Pair instability supernovae only occur in very massive stars, where the temperature in the core gets so high that the photons inside the star, which supply radiation pressure required to stop the star collapsing inwards due to gravity, spontaneously convert into electron-positron pairs. Now this removes the radiation pressure and triggers a runaway collapse followed by a violent explosion of the core. 
the iron present in the core would then be flung out rather than sucked back in to form a black hole, which is what happens in lower energy supernovae. The unique iron abundances in J0018-0939 suggest that a huge star, ending its life in a parent stability supernova, was responsible for its formation. Given the advanced age of the observed star, its parent star would effectively meet the criteria for being one of those first gigantic stars. There are some caveats to the theory, though. This is only one star amongst many, many others, and a statistical sample would have to be built up to be able to state with any accuracy that this is the explanation for the observed abundances. Furthermore, Aoki acknowledges that some aspects of the element profile are still unexplained. There is still plenty of work to be done, and models need to be improved before clear conclusions can be reached. Future telescopes, such as the James Webb Space Telescope, will be able to provide more stars for study, and may even be able to witness the explosive deaths of the first stars directly, in light coming from the most distant galaxies. Seeing those supernovae will be irrefutable proof of the existence of the first-generation giants. In other news, astronomers have mapped the supercluster of galaxies that contains our own Milky Way, and they have defined a new way to separate one supercluster from another. Using a database compiling galaxy velocities, they constructed a three-dimensional field of galaxy flow and density, effectively trying to understand the large-scale motion that gravity imprints on all the galaxies. This so-called movement map takes into account all matter with gravitational pull, meaning it also accounts for the effect of dark matter. The map shows flow lines, which trace the general movement of galaxies, and defines boundaries between clusters as points on the map where the lines diverge or go in different directions. The researchers found that, using this definition, the Virgo supercluster that is, that is usually defined as the supercluster containing our own Milky Way becomes simply a subset of a larger supercluster, which they dubbed Laniakea, which is Hawaiian for immeasurable heaven. The research team is based at the University of Honolulu. A hundred times the size of Virgo, Laniakea is 520 million light-years across and contains the mass of 100 million billion suns, so that's 10 to the 17 times the mass of the sun. However, other research on superclusters is ongoing, and this find is unlikely to be the final word on the matter. Thanks for that, Indy. Now it's Mark's turn, and Mark talks to Dr Richard Shaw about detecting BAOs using neutral hydrogen. I'm interviewing Dr Richard Shaw from the University of Toronto. Welcome to the Jogcast. Well, thank you for having me. You've given a colloquium about using hydrogen to explore cosmology here at Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics. And it reminded me of an interview we had not too long ago about a telescope called Bingo. Um, and so it might be covering some of the same physics, but could you recap a little bit about how you're using hydrogen to look at the history of the universe? Well, we're using um, hydrogen, we're using a, a particular transition that hydrogen has, where there's a a flip between the proton and electron spins being pointing in the same direction to them being in the opposite direction. And this um, emits uh, light in the radio spectrum, 21 centimetres in wavelength. Now, this light with a powerful radio telescope you can see from a very large distance, and you can use this to map hydrogen in the universe. So the idea is that where there is lots of hydrogen, you see this emission strongly, and where there is less hydrogen, you see it less strongly. And so if you just look out and make a map of the distribution of um, this light, that gives you an idea of where the hydrogen is. The hydrogen is essentially tracing the, the total distribution of matter in the universe, and you can use that to map the universe on very large scales. 
So you're obviously interested in how the hydrogen is distributed around. Um, how do you get an idea of depth in the universe, if that makes sense? Because the universe is expanding, when the light is emitted from hydrogen, it starts off with a wavelength of 21 centimetres. But as the universe expands, that gets stretched. And so because of the way the universe expands, the light that was emitted longest ago is the furthest away. And so the light that's expanded the most, so it's redshifted the most, um, has come from the furthest distance. And you can use this redshifting as essentially a distance measure. So we know that because it was 21 centimetres to start with, light that is now 42 centimetres comes from a redshift of one. So you're looking at the expanding universe, essentially. And how far back can you look with this technique? In theory, you can look back an extremely long way with this technique. So you can look back in time till the time after the Big Bang of about three or 400,000 years. And that seems like a long time to us now, but as the universe is about 14 billion years old, that's actually a very large fraction of the, the universe's age. However, in the local universe, which is what we're trying to probe with this, we're only looking back to about redshift of three, which is only about 10 billion years. But still quite an appreciable fraction of the universe's it is, age. It is indeed. And this project that you're actually talking about was called CHIME, which is a nice name, Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment. So when you use this, what's the um, instrument like that you're looking at and, and what do you hope or expect to see? It's a radio telescope. It's a radio interferometer. So the way it works is it combines signals from lots of individual antennas rather than having just a single antenna. However, it looks very different to most radio interferometers. And so rather than being the sort of classic radio dish, the sort of thing that you'd see on contact or something like that, it's a very dense array. So rather than being all these individual dishes spread out, it's actually a set of very long sort of half cylinders, um, like a half pipe sort of shape. Each is 20 metres wide and 100 metres long. And there's five of them in a row. And so that makes a, basically a square 100 metres on each side. And above that, there's all sorts of individual uh, radio antennas strung out. And it's the signals from those individual radio antennas that we combine together to map the sky, essentially. So it's obviously a dedicated instrument. Why do you make it in this slightly unusual configuration? So I assume then you couldn't just take a normal radio dish and make the same sorts of measurements that you're looking for? If we just took a radio dish of 100 metres 100 meters wide, so there are telescopes of that size, they're the sort of biggest radio telescopes we have, what we achieve with our instrument is something that has the same kind of resolution on the sky as one of these radio telescopes of 100 metres in size, a single radio telescope. But we can see in many, many different directions at one time which is unlike these, you know, just a normal kind of single dish radio telescope, um, which has the same resolution, but can only see in one direction at once. And so by doing this, we can survey the sky, which is what we're interested in doing, extremely rapidly, because we're looking simultaneously in a very large range of directions. Ah, I see. So it's important to be looking at the whole of the sky, or as much as you can see and get hold of. Yes, it is. We want we want to be seeing as much of the sky as, as possible. You know, we want to be see as much as we can in the two or so years that we're going to be observing. So you're talking about some really interesting things to do with the effects that we can measure in the expansion of the universe. So some listeners will probably 
know a bit about the cosmic microwave background where there's this light from when the universe was very young sort of encoded with this information about what they call the the baryon acoustic oscillations what i thought was remarkable was that you're able to pick up the same thing in the matter that's around us today in the way that galaxies are distributed around the sky and also in the way that hydrogen is distributed so how do these oscillations end up making this imprint in the universe the cosmic microwave background going back a long way comes from a time when the universe was this very hot soup of photons so particles of light and baryons sort of ordinary matter everything was so hot that it was just a single plasma now in that plasma sound waves are propagating around so from the big bang for 300,000 years a sound wave can just propagate as similar to throwing a stone on a pond you have a, a ripple propagating outwards from a point 300,000 years after the big bang the universe cooled enough that the baryons rather than being in this plasma they formed neutral atoms like hydrogen and at that point the baryons sort of drop out of these sound waves in essence, their distribution becomes roughly fixed at that point. What we're seeing today in the barren acoustic oscillations in the nearby universe, which we can see by looking at, say, the galaxy distribution, we're just seeing the tiny imprints left over from these, these sound waves propagating out. Although they've been sort of diluted by the processes that have gone on since then of increased clustering and galaxy formation and things like that, we can still see these residual ripples, which are about 5% of the sort of matter distribution on those scales. So there's ripples in how galaxies are actually spread across the sky. Exactly. If you look at the position of one galaxy and you ask what's the sort of probability of a galaxy being a certain distance away, where these ripple is, it's 5% more likely for a galaxy to be at this particular distance than it would be if there wasn't these barren acoustic oscillations, these sort of primordial sound waves. Wow, that's remarkable. So the hydrogen you were saying largely there's a time in the universe's history where most of it gets, you described it as sort of being eaten away, I think, as, as being ionised. So the hydrogen that you're going to be observing with time, where, does that, where is that mostly located? Is that within galaxies as well? Exactly. So it, it is mostly within galaxies. So initially the universe is just full of hydrogen. After the cosmic microwave background is kind of formed, the universe is just full of neutral hydrogen. And this goes on for very long time until the first you know, massive stars essentially form. And they produce so much radiation, very high energy radiation, that it can actually ionize the hydrogen. And, you know, as you say, that happens and it eats away at the neutral hydrogen, forming these big ionized bubbles which expand and merge until almost all the universe is ionized. What happens is that in very dense environments like galaxies, you can still have neutral hydrogen surviving. Because it's very dense, it's possible for this to survive, essentially because in these dense environments you have a very large number of particles that can interact with each other. And so every time one of these hydrogen atoms gets ionized, there's many more particles around it that can help it to recombine, to become neutral again. That's much easier in a, in a dense environment when there's lots of other particles around. And so it's in only in galaxies that you have these pockets of neutral hydrogen that really keep going. And you still get that 21 centimetre signal out. And yes, and you need you need this neutral gas for this 21 centimetre signal to come out. So that's that's in the very in the late universe, so redshift 3 and onwards, that's really where the signal comes from, it's in galaxies. And you showed a really nice graph as well, looking at 
what you're actually kind of finding out. There was a graph of supernovas at many different distances in the universe, and you were showing how the brightness of these the supernova explosions was used to show that the expansion of the universe seems to be accelerating, which is how we get the idea of dark energy. So we've got that. What sort of um, new information or refined information could you get about the expansion of the universe from looking at the neutral hydrogen? The way we're trying to find information about the expansion of the universe from the neutral hydrogen is by looking at these baryon acoustic oscillations, and they essentially give us a sort of standard ruler. In this sense, a standard ruler is just a scale that you know how big it physically is. A standard ruler that we have is a 30 centimetre piece of wood, uh, and you know that's 30 centimetres long. What you can do with the standard ruler is if you see it a long, a long way away, and you know exactly how long it is, you can measure what its angular size is, so how big it looks is in, in terms of an angle. And by you know, measuring that and knowing how big it is, you can work out how far away it is. So in this case, sort of the angle times the distance how far away it is is equal to the standard ruler's size. And so we can invert that and we can figure out how far away our standard ruler is in this case. Now, that's a very important quantity. So we can also work out is what the redshift of our standard ruler is, just by, by essentially the frequencies or wavelengths we're observing at tells us the redshift. In that case, what we now have is a distance that we've measured using this standard ruler to a certain redshift. And that's exactly what we're measuring with things like supernova. So we're measuring the distance to a certain redshift. And that's measuring the expansion of the universe. Now, what you get by doing this instead of supernova is it's just, it's just a very different probe. So we can cover different ranges of redshifts with this. So supernovas are very good at low redshifts, and with this we hope to push towards high redshifts. You're also susceptible to a very different set of biasing effects and errors that can mess up your observations. And so there are many things we don't understand about, about the supernova, and there's many things we don't understand about these barren acoustic oscillations. And what we hope to do is, you know, because they're different, they're different sets of things we don't understand, we hope to be able to combine these, these probes together in a more robust way. Okay, so hopefully, well, perhaps, I don't know, depends on your point of view, hopefully they might agree with each other, or maybe it would be exciting if they didn't quite agree with each other. <laughs> if they don't agree with each other, that, that, that is exciting. That If we've gone through and we've checked off all the, the things we don't understand and they still don't agree with each other, then that tells us something new about the universe that we weren't expecting. So with supernovas, I guess it's just that we think we know how bright they are intrinsically and that helps us to establish how far away they are, but we can't be absolutely sure that we're absolutely definitely right and they're always the same brightness. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's the, the, the problem with um, supernova is really just, as you say, is, is just knowing that we know exactly how bright they are. There's many other effects that can, can go and change that. And then there's the similar problem with the uh, barren acoustic oscillations. It's all about knowing how long that standard ruler really is, which comes from our theory of the cosmology. So actually, it's the cosmic microwave background, really, that tells us how long this standard ruler is um, and our current understanding of cosmology. Great. Well, perhaps the last one. This one might be a, a little bit of a difficult question, but you were explaining that the signal that you're looking for, this 21 centimeter signal, is actually up to a million times smaller than all the... Uh, annoying rest of the universe that we call foregrounds that kind of gets in the way um, and you were talking a little bit about how you propose to remove the foregrounds how can you clear away something that's a million times bigger than what you want to see 
that's right. That's the big problem with making these these measurements of barren acoustic oscillations with this 21 centimeter technique. When we do this, we hope to be looking directly at the 21 centimeter radiation, but we're not. Our own galaxy is is much brighter than that, um, and other galaxies that we're looking at also shine much brighter than that. We see them as distant bright specks. Now, the way we hope to separate them is that if we look through as a function of frequency, the foregrounds, our galaxy and the other galaxies, tend to be extremely smooth. The brightness we see is just a very, very smooth function of frequency. That's not true of the 21 centimeter. So when we look at a different frequencies at the 21 centimeter duration, what we're really looking at is different slices through the universe. And those we don't expect to be smooth because we're slicing through different galaxies and different galaxy clusters and just really looking at different sets of structure. And so the way we hope to be able to get digging down through the emission of our own galaxy to this 21 centimeter signal is by really just looking for the signal that looks rough as a function of frequency. So we want to throw away any signal which looks smooth. And I think we believe that we can do that well enough and that the signal from our own galaxy is smooth enough that we can use this to dig down this, uh, this factor of a million to get down to the 21 centimeter signal. Do you use information that's been gathered from other uh, observations as well, or would it be the information that's just within the survey that CHIME does? Mostly we just use the information which comes from CHIME itself. I think other probes and other surveys have have been crucial in telling us that this um, this radiation from our own galaxy is smooth, um, that combined with our sort of theoretical understanding of how the emission in our galaxy works you know, that that's what tells us it's smooth for doing this this uh cleaning of the the light from our galaxies you know that we usually only really use the information from from our own observations and just as a very last question then um, how long do you think the actual time survey will take when do you expect it to get going and, and be completed we've yet to build the full-size instrument that should be starting to be constructed later this year we currently have a, an instrument which is Roughly half size, so rather than 100 metres by 100 metres, it's 40 metres by 40 metres. And we're currently getting to grips with how that works. I expect that by the time we've got a lot of data and we've started to understand how it works and we've really started churning through the analysis of the data and the, you know, removing these um, the bright signal from our own galaxy, that might take five or six years. Well, that's not too long on an astronomical timescale, given that the light's been around for a few billion years. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. It just shows that there's lots of different approaches to, to cosmology. So thank you very, very much for that. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for that, Mark. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, uh, Mark, why don't you uh, start things off? I've got something about satellites going wrong and what happens when satellites go wrong. Well, the answer is actually we don't really know yet what the consequences are but it's a couple of satellites that are part of the Galileo constellation which is basically the European Union's answer to the global positioning system so GPS has been around for a while and it's actually run by the American government and there are satellites orbiting the earth all the time that basically send out clock signals so they broadcast the time from their onboard atomic clocks all over the world all the time. And if you have a GPS receiver, your receiver picks up a number of those satellites, compares the time signals 
works out how long the signal was travelling for from the satellite, and then it can work out your position on the Earth. Um, and although everyone manages with that quite well, different groups sort of want their own versions. So the Russians have one called GLONASS, and the EU is creating Galileo. And the satellites are actually being launched at the moment. They're going to launch a total of 30. 24 apparently is considered what, what they need, but there's six spares. And it's the fifth and sixth satellites that were launched from French Guiana on the 22nd of August, which haven't quite gone into the right orbits. Mm. Um, they were launched by Russian Soyuz rockets, and it seems that somewhere in one of the upper stages where the rocket sort of blasts the satellite into the correct orbit, something didn't quite work. So instead of orbiting in a nice circle at 29,900 kilometres from the surface of the Earth, these are only orbiting at 26,200 kilometres, and the orbits are apparently not circular, and they're also at slightly the wrong angle. So it's not completely clear why that's happened, and it's also not quite clear what the consequences are going to be, because each satellite, in order to stay in orbit, has to have a little bit of fuel on board, because although they're in space, there's still a tiny little bit of atmosphere to, to gradually drag them down. And apparently each satellite's got 70 kilograms of uh, fuel on it. And so they might be able to use some of this to push it up into the correct orbit. But then the question is, have you used up too much of the fuel for them to last for a reasonable amount of time within the Galileo constellation? Or it's it's even possible they haven't released the full details yet that, that they might not have enough fuel to blast into that orbit. So the second question would be, if your satellite's not quite where you thought it was going to be, can you still use it for GPS? And I say GPS generically, but I should probably say Galileo. Can you use it for that? Because theoretically, it doesn't matter entirely where they are as long as you know exactly where they are all the time. Yeah, it's funny how uh, how GPS has kind of gotten into everyday language when, in fact, it is just the Americans' sort of proprietary system and it's the one that's used all over them. But um, I guess, so So, what what, are the, what will the advantages be of having like our own European Union or European system of, of satellites as opposed to already, we use the American ones already, so? Well, the language I've read is, is a little bit vague. I think the bottom line is that it would be more accurate than current GPS. So current GPS is normally something like 15 metre accuracy, um, which is pretty good. It certainly can tell you what road you're on normally when you're driving your car. Uh, but Galileo is supposed to work to an accuracy of one meter, which is really good. I mean, that's like between my house and next door, or between one side of the road and the other. Um, the reason it's a bit vague is that what they talk in is very general terms. They say, for example, that 800 billion euros a year of business depends on GPS, and therefore they can extend high-value markets using the Galileo system. So I think essentially it's there might be lots of applications that say we really want the accurate thing, so it's supposed to sort of boost any kind of GPS application within within business. Um, not only in the EU, I guess, but also worldwide. Um, and that 800 billion a year figure sounds extraordinary, but I guess that everybody virtually uses gps for something yeah i suppose so um i guess it does make sense that the american satellites are slightly older technology and so it makes sense to have a sort of upgrade um i assume it's also 
kind of government speak for they have one so we want one yeah <laughs> people like to be independent i guess i mean the american one used to uh restrict accuracy so they'd actually scramble the the clock signal a little bit and only the u.s military had the code to mm-hmm. to use the most accurate form but that actually uh was stopped right uh, quite a long time ago so in fact everyone has access to the full thing um but i guess yeah if if something happens to that constellation if the u.s decides for some reason that it wasn't going to be uh, freely available anymore, then it could create a problem. Um, that, that does make sense. And yeah, I mean, redundancy is always better. And, and it's true that a lot, so many things are crucially dependent on GPS technology nowadays. That Yeah. Although I don't think saying something like, hang on, let me check Galileo is going to pass into common <laughs> parlance, really. I know Galileo sounds, it sounds good, quite nice, doesn't but, it? Um, I think it's, it could all just end up being called GPS. I yeah, I think I think it will be. The it's thing like, is, if you have GLONASS, if you call that the GLONASS positioning system, the Galileo, the Galileo <laughs> positioning system, system, they're all GPS anyway. That is very true. I um, should point out as well that the USA they are going to be upgrading GPS, so yeah. it's going to be called GPS three, um, but it's still in the pipeline at the moment. So probably, say a decade from now, you may find that GPS and Galileo and perhaps GLONASS as well are all working on that higher accuracy and you have a really fancy receiver um you might be able to pick up satellites from all the constellations and that will help you to um get a more accurate position for your individual device excellent well hopefully they'll be able to figure out the problem and uh, and use the the satellites nonetheless uh i'm going to be sticking with satellites actually well partly sticking with satellites because it turns out that there's quite a large controversy uh, in the world of measuring star distances. And a US uh, group of researchers using the very long baseline array, so that's one of the one of the largest telescope arrays in the world, and they've been measuring the distance to the Pleiades star cluster. So the Pleiades Seven Sisters is quite a well-known star cluster, um, relatively close to Earth. It's called Subaru in Japanese, so that follows, if you look at the logo of that, um, particular car company, you'll see that they have seven stars on it. So this this US team with the VLBA claim to have made the most precise measurement uh, to the Pleiades yet. And that's actually revived the dispute that's been going on for, well, basically the last 17 years, because their results are disputed by the team, the European team, uh, behind the Hipparchos satellite. So Hipparchos is, is a space telescope that was sent up uh, in the early 90s, and it made measurements of something like 180,000 stars and essentially created uh, a 3D map uh, of the sky. And it had two different viewing directions, which were separated by quite a large angle. And using a using a measurement technique known as parallax, where essentially you look at the same object from two different angles, and trigonometry enables you to calculate the distance to that object. So Hipparchos measured a distance of 120 parsecs to to the Pleiades, but the new measurements from the VLBA team turn out to be 136.2 parsecs, so that's uh, 16 parsecs further away, so we're looking at about 440 light years. And the problem is that these two measurements just don't coincide at all because both measurements had a, an accuracy of plus or minus two parsecs, so or even less than that. So there's the rub, and unfortunately this does happen in, in 
uh, you know, scientific results. So obviously one group has to be wrong, we're assuming, but neither of them think that there is a flaw. Well, both groups think that the flaw lies in the other group's technique or, or measurements. <laughs> of course. Because it would it would be a little bit embarrassing if you insisted that you were right and then figured out that you were wrong. The thing is, the authors of the VLBA, they also used parallax, but so they were ground-based, uh, and they have more sensitivity than Hipparchus. So they used background galaxies as their fixed object, which they then used to, to measure the parallax. So essentially, they looked at the... Uh, Pleiades from two different angles and each time they noted they essentially took a galaxy a background galaxy as a point that wasn't moving and they could use uh, the the sort of relative displacement of where the Pleiades were with respect to that fixed background galaxy to figure out just using trigonometry uh, how far the Pleiades were from us uh, Hipparchos did it slightly differently they didn't have the sensitivity to have these sort of distant fixed background objects but because they measured uh, so many uh, different stars and they knew precisely where their telescope was pointing at what time uh, they could essentially use sort of the absolute reference frame uh, of where the telescope was and where all the stars were to construct a precise 3D image and also use the distances between um, stars that were all roughly the same distance away to actually determine the distance from us to the Pleiades and so obviously because they're using two different techniques, each team is suggesting that the other ones are slightly wrong. And the US team especially, though, have, have pointed out that the new Gaia space telescope, which um, has just been sent up, may suffer from the same systematic problems as the Hipparchos method. However, Gaia may actually solve this because it has much more sensitivity than Hipparchos and would be able to detect fixed background galaxies. The distance itself, the debate of which is the right distance, is quite important as well because the Pleiades cluster is, is made up of young stars. They're only about 100 million years old, which is really young in stellar terms. Uh, they're actually visible to the naked eye uh, in the Taurus constellation. And knowing how far away they are and comparing that to thing, other, other, other measurements like their brightness, their intrinsic brightness, their apparent brightness, tells us can tell us a lot of information about stellar evolution and about evolution processes and in young stars and what they're burning and, and, and how it works. A, d a distance difference of 16 parsecs, while it may not seem like much in the grand scheme of things, it could actually affect our current stellar models, especially with young stars, with respect to young stars, quite a lot. So there is actually a lot of, uh, a lot of stellar physics that's, that's riding on this divide. And so there's, there's a, a disagreement that basically crosses the Atlantic on this one, and, and uh, who knows which group is going to prevail in the end at this point. Isn't it strange how hard it is to measure distances in space still, even now? Because the parallax one is one of the oldest around, I guess, for making accurate measurements. Mm -hmm. And there's always this analogy where, like, if you um, make a circle with your thumb and forefinger and you look at something in the distance using one of your eyes only, and then you close that eye and open the other one, you'll see that the the object in the background sort of moves out of the circle that's made by your fingers. And it's the same thing, so that would be your two eyes would be like Hipparchos or whatever in two different places, or the Earth in two different places around the Sun. And then the the nearer the background object is to you, the more it seems to be shifted by parallax. Yep. So you either have to, like you were saying, use some kind of fixed background as your reference, like your background galaxies. That would be like if you're looking at something and there's a, a field or a tree in the background or something. Or you can use the object itself. So, you, so I could say, well, 
I know where my fingers are, so I'm going to use them as my reference. And that's like using the instrument itself, I guess. But um, sometimes people imagine that parallax is used a lot, like that you might measure the distance to another galaxy with parallax or something. But actually, you can only really do it to a few hundred light years, as you said, a few hundred parsecs, even with the instruments we've got today. Yeah. And then you have to rely on other things like knowing how stars behave, which tells us about their brightness. So a measurement like this would have implications for distance measurements for much more uh, far away objects. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, that's the thing about parallax is essentially the, the object that you're trying to determine the distance to has to move within your viewfinder. So if it's a galaxy, you're not going to be able to find a very distant galaxy. You, it's going to be at the same spot wherever you kind of look at it from. That's why it's not, it's not more widely used. If Hipparchos had systematic errors as well, that would rebound on all their measurements of all the other stars, I guess, potentially. I think it probably, it, it, it may do that, but I, I, you'd assume that if it was a systematic error, it'd be fairly easy to correct for once they, once they understood it. And it wouldn't affect things like measuring sort of uh, luminosity and, and other things that didn't really depend on position, I suppose. But it is it is an interesting debate and and it does also reveal kind of the contentious nature of science and how well things are never quite as fixed as they might seem, even if some expert says something, then there's always going to be another expert that may have a contrasting claim. So Well now to someone who knows exactly how far away the Pleiades are but isn't telling. Here's Ian Morrison with this month's Northern Hemisphere Night Sky. The night sky for September two thousand and fourteen. Well, at least you don't have to stay up quite so late to see a dark sky when there's no moon. And that's a great help. I've been staying up to two o'clock some nights in June and July to get a point when it's really dark. Well, what do we see? Well, for quite a few months in a row, actually, we have what is called the Summer Triangle, fairly high in the south. That's made up of three bright stars. The highest one is Vega, in the little constellation of Lyra the Lyre. Over to its left is Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. And below them is Altair, which is in Aquila the Eagle. Looking up at Deneb, you'll actually see three stars in a line to its lower right. And then, if it's really dark, a couple of further stars away from Deneb. And those actually make up what's called the Northern Cross. I was in the Mid-Wales the other night, and in fact it showed up really rather well. But you do have to be in a dark location, particularly to see the stars down at the very tip of the bottom of the cross, or it's actually the head of the swan. It's a lovely star called Alberio, and in a small telescope it shows up as a beautiful double star with a lovely contrast almost a gold and a blue of the two stars you see. And again, with binoculars, just over to the left of Vega, you may spot a double star, two stars close together. It's, in fact, Epsilon Lyra. It's called the double-double because each of those stars is itself a double star, and they can be seen when the seeing is good with a small telescope. Down to the lower left of the Summer Triangle is a little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin, which I rather like. Below there, it's a fairly empty part of the sky. It's the constellations of Aquarius and Capricornus. But then rising in the east as the evening moves on, we have the great square of Pegasus, the winged horse, which actually is upside down. Again with binoculars, if you follow around the arc of its head, 
and carry on a bit, you come to what's called a globular cluster. It's a very ancient grouping of stars, perhaps up to a million in number, called M15. And again, from the top left corner of the square, you can fairly easily find the Andromeda galaxy. You move one star up and to the left a bit, move round 20, 30 degrees to the next bright star, then turn sharp right, 90 degrees right, move to a small, fairly bright star. The same distance again, you may see a fuzzy glow. And that's one of the ways of finding Andromeda, M31. It's the largest galaxy in our local group of galaxies. We're number two. It's probably 25 to 30% bigger than us. The other way to find it is up to the right, towards the north from Pegasus, is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And if you actually take the three stars nearest the zenith, the higher three, use them as a little arrow, that actually points down to Andromeda as well. And finally, again as the evening draws on, just beneath Cassiopeia, towards the northeast, is the constellation of Perseus. And between the two constellations, actually in Perseus, there's a lovely grouping of stars called the Double Cluster, two very close open clusters of young stars. You can see a little fuzzy glow in binoculars, and it looks beautiful in a telescope. So anyway, I hope you enjoy looking up at the sky. Well, it's not the greatest month for planets, but what can we tell about the planets in September? Jupiter, which is shining at magnitude minus 1.8, begins the month just about 2.5 degrees to the lower left of M44, which is the beehive cluster, or Prisopi, in Cancer. It's moving down towards Leo, which it will reach in the middle of October. At the start of September, it rises 2.5 hours before the sun. Actually, rather nicely, this increases to 4.5 hours by month's end, so you do have a chance of seeing it when it's still pretty dark. As the Earth in its orbit around the Sun is moving towards Jupiter, the size of Jupiter's disk increases slightly from 32.1 to 33.6 arc seconds, so early risers should be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and up to the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. At the other end of the day, Saturn can be seen after sunset, low in the southwest. It's lying in Libra, moving slowly away from the wide double star Alpha Libri, as it shines with a magnitude of plus 0.6. One hour after sunset, at the start of the month, it'll be 20 degrees above the horizon, so our view will be limited somewhat of its 16 arc-second disk. However, by the end of September, it'll only be about 10 degrees elevation at this time, probably this month is our last chance to observe it for a while, when it will then appear having passed behind the sun in the morning sky. The ring system has now opened up to 23 degrees to the line of sight, so that should still show nicely, and with a reasonable sized telescope, you should also be able to spot Titan, its largest satellite. Mercury has a very poor evening apparition this month. Though it is at greatest elongation, which is 26 degrees east of the Sun on September the 21st, the elevation will be very low, because at this time of the year, the ecliptic makes a very shallow angle to the horizon. Probably best to find it on the 20th, given a clear night and a low western horizon. Note where the Sun sets, and only then you can use binoculars to sweep about 25 degrees to the left of that point, 
and perhaps 5 to 10 degrees above the horizon. You might then spot Mercury. It's in the constellation Virgo at magnitude zero, which could be seen just half a degree below first magnitude Spica, which is Alpha Virginis. Mars has been visible for quite a while in the evening because it's moving quite quickly eastwards. It moves from Libra into Scorpius, ending the month close to Antares, that's that lovely red star. It dims from plus 0.6 to plus 0.8 during the month, and obviously at the same time its disk is falling from 6.8 down to 6.1 arc seconds. Obviously it's best to observe it as soon as darkness falls, but given its low elevation, it's unlikely you'll see any details on its salmon pink surface. On the 12th, it will lie halfway between Saturn and Antares, and on the 17th, will lie just half a degree above the second magnitude star, Delta Scorpii. And finally, Venus. Well, this is still a morning star. It rises in the east-northeast in the pre-dawn sky an hour before the sun. That actually reduces to half an hour by the end of the month. So again, it's best to try and look for it early on in September. Shining at magnitude minus 3.9, it can be spotted in Leo well down to the lower left of Jupiter as the month begins. On the 5th and 6th, it'll be just a degree above on the 5th and then to the left on the 6th of the first magnitude star, Regulus Alpha Leonis. Well, what about some highlights of the month? Well, there's nothing particularly spectacular, to be honest. It's still a good month to observe Neptune with binoculars or a small telescope. It came into opposition, that means it's nearest to the Earth, on the 29th of August. So it will be seen well this month. It has a magnitude of plus 7.9, so it should be spotted easily with binoculars lying in the constellation Aquarius. But of course you need to know where to look. And on the Night Sky page, just search for Night Sky, perhaps with Jodrell Bank, I actually give a chart showing how to find it. It rises to an elevation of about 27 degrees when it's due south. Given a telescope of 8 or more inches in aperture and a dark, transparent night, you should even be able to spot its moon Triton. As I've briefly mentioned, on September the 5th, half an hour before sunrise, Venus is very close to Regulus in Leo. In fact, one degree virtually, uh, to be precise, 59 minutes and 46 arc seconds to the upper left of Regulus. Nice to look at. On September the 5th, an hour after sunset, Antares, Mars and Saturn lie in the southwest. You need a good, low, unobstructed horizon. But looking southwest, you should see Mars, magnitude 0.6, lying between Antares, magnitude 0.9 to its left, and Saturn, magnitude 0.6, lying to its right. On the 20th of September, before dawn, Jupiter will be quite close, 6 degrees in fact, up and to the left of a thin crescent moon. On September the 27th and 28th, after sunset, you can see Saturn, Mars and the thin crescent moon. On the 27th, the crescent moon will be lying down to the right of Saturn in Libra. On the next night, a fuller crescent moon will lie halfway between Mars and Saturn. And on both these nights, Mars will be lying just over three degrees above Antares in Scorpius. 
Finally, I do have on the Night Sky page every month something to look at on the moon. This month I've got what's called the Alpine Valley. It's close to the limb on the 2nd and the 14th of the month. Those are good evenings to look for it. It lies in the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. If you look at that with a telescope, towards the upper end, you should see the cleft across them called the Alpine Valley. Of course, that's with a telescope that inverts the image. It is about seven miles wide and 79 miles long. A thin rill runs along its length, which is quite a challenge to observe. And you can, in fact, see the night after the second, perhaps on the third and fourth, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus coming into view. It's a very interesting region of the moon. I do hope you have a chance to spot some of these things during the month. Thanks for that, Ian. And now, presenting the southern night sky, is Claire Brotherton. Kia ora, and welcome to the September Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. September marks the start of the spring here in the southern hemisphere. As we head towards the spring equinox on the 23rd of the month, we see a rapid change in our daylight hours, with our days getting longer and our nights shorter. Equinox means equal night, because we have the same number of hours of daylight and the same number of hours of darkness at this time of year. The bright stars Vega and Canopus mark north-south around dusk this month, guiding our eye to the bright band of the Milky Way passing high overhead. Along with the nearby bright stars of Deneb in Cygnus the Swan and Altair in Aquila the Eagle, Vega forms part of the Winter Triangle, as seen here in the Southern Hemisphere. Between Vega and Altair is Albereo, or the Beak Star, marking the head of the Swan. This is a double star and a lovely sight in a small telescope, because of the easily seen contrasting colour between blue and gold components. Our winter constellations of Scorpius and Sagittarius are slowly sliding down towards our western horizon, and will be setting by around midnight as Orion rises opposite in the east. Following behind Sagittarius are the fainter zodiac constellations of Capricornus, Aquarius and Pisces, visible in the evening sky. Capricorn is the second faintest zodiacal constellation following Cancer, and appears as an elongated triangle resembling a pennant, with the tip facing away from Sagittarius. A small triangular grouping of stars marks the goat's head and horns. Capricorn means the goat horn, and it is often represented as a mythical half-goat, half-fish creature. At magnitude 2.8, the brightest star in the constellation is unusually designated Delta Capricorni, and is also known as Deneb al Jedi, meaning the tail of the goat. This star is an eclipsing binary, meaning that the orbital plane of the two components is aligned so that they eclipse each other from our line of sight. This causes a dip in brightness of up to 0.24 magnitudes. The system has two additional faint companion stars, bringing the total count to four. Alpha Capricorni is another double star, which can easily be split with binoculars and can even be distinguished with the naked eye. It is commonly known as Algiedi, meaning the kid. Although these stars appear close together, their proximity is just a line of sight effect, with primary and secondary components positioned at 109 and 690 light years respectively. Both are in fact multiple star systems in their own right. Capricornus is just one of a number of watery-themed constellations in this part of the sky, which has been associated with the time of the northern hemisphere autumn and winter rains. 
To the southeast of Capricornus is the faint constellation of Pisces Austrinus, the southern fish, with its only bright star, Fommelhaut, marking the mouth of the fish. Fommelhaut has been the subject of some controversy over the past few years. In 2008, astronomers Callas and Graham identified a massive planet orbiting the star. But what was really exciting about this detection was that this planet, called Fommelhaut b, was the first to be discovered by direct imaging, appearing as a small cluster of pixels in images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Follow-up observations, however, failed to find the planet and left many to doubt its existence. It wasn't until 2012 that Fommelhaut b was independently detected and confirmed by Thane Curry at the University of Toronto, and then by Gallica and Maroy in 2013. Its controversial past has earned it the nickname the Zombie Planet, a planet resurrected from the dead. Stretching between Fommelhaut in the east and Alta in the north is a long string of stars that forms the zodiac constellation of Aquarius, the water bearer. There are a number of deep sky objects in this constellation that are worth hunting down. M2 is a lovely globular cluster nearby to third magnitude star Beta Aquarii. With a magnitude of 6.3, M2 is a difficult naked eye object, so it's a good challenge for those with clear dark skies and good eyesight. It is easily visible in binoculars as a hazy star, and with a 20 centimeter telescope, a few individual stars can be resolved. M2 is around 37,500 light years away, and with a diameter of 175 light years and around 150,000 members, it is one of the larger globular clusters known. The stars in the cluster have been dated to approximately 13 billion years, some of the oldest known in our galaxy. To the southwest of Delta Aquarii is NGC 7293, the Helix Nebula, one of the largest and closest bright planetary nebulae to our solar system, at 700 light years away. Similar in appearance to the Cat's Eye and Ring Nebulae, NGC 7293 is visible in binoculars as a hazy circular spot. In small telescopes, you may be able to see it as a circle with a dark center, whilst larger telescopes will reveal more detail. To reveal the colors of the nebula, though, a long exposure photograph is needed. Other watery constellations in this part of the sky include Pisces the fish, Cetus the whale, and Delphinus the dolphin. Turning our attention to the western sky, Mars and Saturn remain close together around halfway up our northwestern evening sky at the beginning of the month, and will be joined by a lovely crescent moon on the first. While Saturn continues its slow slide towards the western horizon, Mars, with its much closer orbit, continues to move eastwards against the background stars, passing close to Antares by the end of the month. The name Antares means rival to Mars because of its orangey-red colour. And this close encounter will be a great opportunity to compare the two. Mercury also makes an appearance in our evening skies this month. It's best of the year because it moves on an inner orbit. Mercury never gets far from the sun in our sky, appearing low on the horizon at either dusk or dawn. This month, it reaches its greatest eastern elongation on the 22nd, joining Mars and Saturn in our western sky after dark. It will make a close pairing with Spica in the constellation of Virgo on the 20th. The moon will also move through this planetary triplet over the last few days of the month. Jupiter shines brightly in the northeast in our morning sky, rising around an hour and a half before the sun by mid-month. With a small telescope or a good pair of binoculars, its four largest moons can easily be seen. Look out for the last of three perigee moons on the 9th of September. Often known as a supermoon, this is when the moon's full phase coincides with the closest point in its orbit around Earth, appearing slightly larger and brighter in the sky.
Thanks for listening to our Jodcast from the Southern Hemisphere, wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks, Claire. And now on to the feedback. Not too much feedback this episode, no post. And not much on the email, although we've had one or two questions for Ask an Astronomer. So thank you for those. Uh, we, we did get a comment on our on our latest episode released about uh, varying noise levels between segments. And it did seem that somewhere in the editing and releasing process, uh, an older version that hadn't been uh, dynamically compressed was used. So apologies for that. Um, and we have re-uploaded a new version. So... It's good to know that people notice things like that, though. It is, yeah. So thanks thanks for pointing that out. Um, it, it, if you do ever find something in a Jodcast that sounds a bit weird, do let us know, because we would like to correct things, these things. And we try to catch everything before they go out, but it's not always possible. Thanks to our interviewee, Alan Duffy, who tweeted a picture of, of the, the hallowed Jodcast studio, <laughs> where we are now sitting, um, and drew a couple of responses from uh, fellow Jodcast listeners who were quite pleased at seeing the uh, the inside, that where the magic all happens. Amazed at the sophisticated uh, setup of the studio, perhaps? Yes. Foam is a very high-tech noise-cancelling technology. <laughs> it is quite high-tech, really. It is pretty high-tech. We have dimpled foam. And you'll notice we surrounded ourselves with all the postcards that we've had from listeners over the years as well to to inspire us. Exactly. So if you want your very own piece of if you want a piece of yourself in the Jodcast studio, just send a postcard and you will be present whenever we record. Thanks also f- for all of the uh, favourites, retweets, Follow Fridays uh, on Twitter and all the shares, likes and uh, comments on other comments on Facebook. If you do want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can always send us post. We love post, and the address is on the website. All that's left to say is thank you to Dr. Richard Shaw for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Mark Perver, and Claire Rutherton. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, jod on. on.